In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, so that is that. Now we must dismantle the tree. Thus begins the most famous and final stanza of W.H. Auden's For the Time Being, a lovely Christmas oratorio, which was originally printed as a standalone piece in Harper's Magazine in 1944 under the title After Christmas. Today, after Christmas, we celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany, which brings the final, excuse me, of the 12 days of Christmas season to an end and gives us all a chance now to take a collective breath and to reflect both upon beginnings and endings of the year that has passed and of the one that we have just now begun in Advent, which somehow manages to seem both like yesterday and months ago all at the same time. I recently saw one humorous and all too accurate, I think, internet meme that captures this feeling by describing the season between December 1st and 26th as festive and the days thereafter as, quote, confused, full of cheese, and unsure of the day of the week. (laughs) Perhaps we similarly leave Christmas and Advent feeling a bit disoriented, maybe hopeful, possibly inspired, and likely even disappointed that we didn't fully inhabit the meaning of the seasons as much as we would have liked. Today's gospel recounts the story of the manifestation, as our collect puts it, of God to the infamous wise men, those figures who add a bit of life and flair to the sparse stables and the nativities on our shelves. There's quite a bit of, be- quite a bit of debate about who exactly these men were, where they came from, which star or comet they saw, and what sort of magic-slash-astrology-slash-philosophy they practiced. None of these details, it seems to me, matter much for the purpose of my sermon today, and so I'll leave them aside for your conjecture. Whoever they were, and wherever they were from, they take what is, upon reflection, a seemingly irrational journey to see a newborn baby in a small town in the Judean countryside. Their encounter with the baby ends in conversion and worshipful adoration. And the other texts we are given today in the lectionary interpret for us the grand vision that these men saw and the even grander vision their seeing reveals, namely the culmination of God's redemptive plan, begun before there were beginnings, before time itself, to bring the estranged nations of the world into union with God in the person Christ, as Colossians tells us, reconciling all things to himself. Or as today's psalm describes it, God's plan to deliver the poor, the needy, and those who have no help, redeeming their lives from oppression and from violence. These two are the same. Epiphany, or what is often called Theophany Sunday, which literally means the appearing of God, serves to orient us to what we might have missed during the Christmas celebration, since we were probably too distracted by all of the many good things that occupied our attention during the holiday season. Epiphany is, we might say, the Cliff's Notes version of the Advent and Christmas stories. If you weren't paying close enough attention or didn't properly attend to the season's meanings, we have a ready-made summary here to help us. 
But as with all of the liturgical church calendar, Epiphany is not a feast to be observed like a memorial of remembrance or an antique on the shelf to be admired. It is immersive, such that in walking through the Advent and Christmas seasons and participating in the Epiphany feast, we ourselves enter the story. Or to put it differently, the story of the Magi is our story, the nature of their journey and our journey and what must have come after their vision is what I'd like to focus on for the remainder of my time today. Matthew's gospel tells us that the wise men from the east, Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar, as the tradition would have it, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy upon seeing the star resting over the place where the Christ child was born. The joy they experienced then was the joy that we experienced during the Christmas season, the joy we experience every time we encounter the person of Christ. It's the joy of what we might call conversion, which occurs daily in the Christian life as the Spirit of God makes us rightly relate to Jesus. But what about before and after their encounter at the manger? What must their journey to the manger have been like, and what did they experience on their journey home, leaving the baby behind? These things matter not so that we can create a fanciful retelling of the story to occupy our attention or to entertain our children, but because to live both before and after the epiphany is just what it is to be a Christian. We are a people who live between the first and second advents of Christ. We have been given the epiphany, and we hopefully await the consummation of that revelation. In fact, it is frequently said <clears throat> that all souls is the church of perpetual Lent. That may be well and true, but if it is true, it is only true because All Souls is first and foremost a church of Advent. The reason for this is that to be perpetually Lenten is, is nothing more than to embrace the fact that the reality of the Advent season is the reality of all of our existence. We believe that Christ, for us and for our salvation, became incarnate, and we look for the time when Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and we hope for the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. And so, to return to the story of the wise men, Matthew's gospel doesn't give us too many details other than that these men saw a celestial body and interpreted it, interpreted it as a sign of a cataclysmic historical event that demanded that they drop everything and journey to the west. They do something a bit more logical next, stopping by King's Herod, King Herod's palace to ask where they can find the new child born king of the Jews. Herod sends them on their way, plotting to massacre untold numbers of innocent children to secure his sovereignty, and they eventually come to the place where the mother of God held the baby in her arms. Matthew's account, as we are given, is quite succinct. Poets, however, are less hesitant to imagine the details of the journey of the Magi. Auden's poem, which I mentioned earlier, suggests that the journey probably wasn't at all like the excited anticipation of opening presents that children feel on Christmas Eve. Instead, he describes the wise men as wavering in their belief, that they were wondering whether they were doing the right thing, longing for the comforts of their homes, and knowing nothing more than, than that they could not do otherwise. Listen to Auden's words. At least we know for certain that we are three old sinners, that this journey is much too long, that we want our dinners, and we miss our wives, our books, our dogs. 
but have only the vaguest idea why we are what we are. To discover how to be human now is the reason we follow the star. So too with us, I think. We return again and again to Christ because we see in him the grandest vision of what humanity is and what humanity could be. We wait for Christ to come again, though it's often not entirely clear to us that we're doing the right thing. But it's not only the journey leading up to seeing the baby in the manger that entertains the attention of the poets. Another and perhaps more famous Anglican poet, T.S. Eliot, wrote a poem called The Gift of the Magi, which examines the psychology of one of the three wise men much later in his life, after the journey to visit the manger, which is a bit akin to the life we now live after Christ's first advent. Eliot writes, All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down this, set down this. We were led all that way, were we led all that way, for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly, we had evidence and no doubt, I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation. With an alien people clutching their gods, I should be glad of another death. The birth to which the wise men in Eliot's poem is referring is the birth of Christ in our gospel for today, yes, but it is also his own birth his conversion. And that conversion, we are told, felt a lot like death. And here, St. Paul would agree. It felt like death because the Magi's old life was no longer a possibility for him. After that birth, the birth of Christ and his birth, nothing happened for the person he was before. That feeling of being deeply and utterly changed, of having witnessed something unspeakable and simultaneously being unsure of what happened, is precisely what it is like for Christmas to come to an end. And this is what the end of Auden's poem, which I began with, intends to capture. Well, so that is that. Now we must dismantle the tree, putting the decorations back into their cardboard boxes, some have got broken, and carrying them up to the attic. The holly and the mistletoe must be taken down and burnt, and the children got ready for school. There are enough leftovers to do, warmed up, for the rest of the week. Not that we have much appetite, having drunk such a lot, stayed up so late, attempted quite unsuccessfully to love all of our relatives, and in general grossly overestimated our powers, Auden writes. I suspect many of us are experiencing this very thing, the feeling that comes with the dawning of the new year and the ending of the Christmas feast. It's a post-Christmas hangover, both in the literal and metaphorical sense. But while the guilt of the holiday hangover seems to stem partly from the things that we've done too much of, it also comes from what we have failed to do. To love our relatives and loved ones as we ought, to give our time and money to those less fortunate than ourselves, and most significantly, properly to attend to the Advent feast and Christmas feast, to attend to the light of Christ. Our failure is not primarily our outright rebellion, as much as it is what we might call God-forgetfulness. God-forgetfulness is what happens when we treat things as if they were not manifestations of God's grace, and as if they would have been just as they are if God were not in the picture. That is, that, that, is, that they were not dependent upon God. God-forgetfulness is, is taking Christ out of Christmas, not by removing his name and substituting an X, 
but rather by going through the entire season without so much as thinking about the reason for which it exists. Out and again. Once again, as in previous years, we have seen the actual vision and failed to do more than entertain it as an agreeable possibility. Once again, we have sent him away, begging though to remain his disobedient servant. Our God-forgetfulness can only be cured by seeing the glory of God, by experiencing epiphany. Theologians refer to this seeing God as the beatific vision. It is the content of the resurrection hope that we will one day see God face to face, as the wise men did that night. But the beatific vision also refers to Christ's vision of God throughout the entirety of his earthly life, his actively living out the life of God on earth without for a second forgetting that all things are made so that God might be all in all. This doesn't mean that the baby in the manger was crying because he could only think of the cross, but it does mean that Christ lived every moment of his life in perfect fulfillment of the humanity he had assumed. He shows us what it is to be human. To put this differently, humanity's God-forgetfulness is reconciled by Christ's constant apprehension of God throughout his life, his perfect attunement to his calling and mission as he learned them. But there's more to the story of the Magi than the journey to see Christ and the lives they lived thereafter, our journey to see Christ and our lives thereafter. Epiphany is the manifestation of Christ to a people not previously considered part of God's chosen people, to the Gentiles. The wise men ask Herod where they can find the one born King of the Jews, but the vision from the start was that the King of the Jews was their King too, for he was the King of all creation. As the text from Isaiah tells us, this extension of God's people to the nations, to the ends of the earth, wasn't a plan B. It was God's intent all along. The light of God will come to the darkness of the earth, and that light will shine, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This inclusion of the nations is the vision of the epiphany. Christ's reconciling work is not limited to any specific group of people, but it is for the whole world. And this is precisely what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The wise men, Gentiles from the East, are included in God's people. We are included in God's people. And one lingering worry I have as I come to the end of this sermon is that I might be heard as suggesting that we should each hope and pray for some special and private encounter with Christ himself in our lives here on earth, like Paul on the road to Damascus or the wise men at the manger. But the message of Epiphany is that Christ has been revealed, and it is our task to attune ourselves, or, or better, to have ourselves attuned to that reality. The American novelist Truman Capote wrote a lovely Christmas short story called A Christmas Memory, which highlights what I mean here quite well. The story recounts a young child's experience of the holiday season with one of his older relatives. In a section of the story, uh, the point I'm making here sticks out as quite pertinent. The character says, you know what I've always thought? I've always thought that a body would have to be sick and dying before they saw the Lord. And I imagined that when it came, it would be like looking at the Baptist window, pretty as colored glass with the sun pouring through such a shine you don't know it's getting dark. And it's been a comfort to think that of that shine taking away all of the spooky feeling. But I'll wager it never happens. 
I'll wager at the very end, a body realizes the Lord has already shown himself, that things as they are, just what they've always been, was seeing him. As for me, I could leave the world with today in my eyes. Thus ends the character's monologue. Well, I don't think the character's wager that the final vision of God never happens is right. I do think her other point, that seeing things as they are, as reconciled to God and Christ, here and now, is in fact what it means, at least part of what it means, to see God. And that's why we celebrate Epiphany. May we, like the wise men, behold Christ face to face as we see his glory in the faces of his people and in the splendor of his creation. Amen.